Chapter Seventeen of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. Martin learned to do many things. In the course of the first week, in one afternoon, he and Joe accounted for the two hundred white shirts. Joe ran the tiler, a machine wherein a hot iron was hooked on a steel string, which furnished the pressure. By this means he ironed the yoke, wristbands, and neckband, setting the latter at right angles to the shirt, and put the glossy finish on the bosom. As fast as he finished them, he flung the shirts on a rack between him and Martin, who caught them up and backed them. This task consisted of ironing all the unstarched portions of the shirt. It was exhausting work, carried on hour after hour, at top speed. Out of the broad verandas of the hotel, men and women, in cool white, sipped iced drinks and kept their circulation down. But in the laundry the air was sizzling. The huge stove roared red-hot and white-hot, while the irons, moving over the damp cloth, sent up clouds of steam. The heat of these irons was different from that used by housewives. An iron that stood the ordinary test of a wet finger was too cold for Joe and Martin and such test was useless. They went wholly by holding the irons close to their cheeks, gauging the heat by some secret mental process that Martin admired but could not understand. When the fresh irons proved too hot, they hooked them on iron rods and dipped them into cold water. This again required a precise and subtle judgment. A fraction of a second too long in the water, and the fine and silken edge of the proper heat was lost and Martin found time to marvel at the accuracy he developed. An automatic accuracy, founded upon criteria that were machine-like and unerring. But there was little time in which to marvel. All Martin's consciousness was concentrated in the work, ceaselessly active, head and hand, an intelligent machine. All that constituted him a man was devoted to furnishing that intelligence. There was no room in his brain for the universe and its mighty problems. All the broad and spacious corridors of his mind were closed and hermetically sealed. The echoing chamber of his soul was a narrow room, a conning tower, whence were directed his arm and shoulder muscles, his ten nimble fingers, and the swift-moving iron along its steaming path in broad sweeping strokes, just so many strokes and no more, just so far with each stroke and not a fraction of an inch farther, rushing along interminable sleeves, sides, backs, and tails, and tossing the finished shirts, without rumpling, upon the receiving frame. And even as his hurrying soul tossed, it was reaching for another shirt. This went on, hour after hour, while outside the world swooned under the overhead California sun. But there was no swooning in that superheated room. The cool guests on the veranda needed clean linen. The sweat poured from Martin. He drank enormous quantities of water, but so great was the heat of the day and his exertions that the water sluiced through the interstices of his flesh and out at all his pores. Always at sea, except at rare intervals, the work he performed had given him ample opportunity to commune with himself. The master of the ship had been lord of Martin's time. But here the manager of the hotel was lord of Martin's thoughts as well. He had no thoughts save for the nerve-racking, body-destroying toil. Outside of that it was impossible to think. 
He did not know that he loved Ruth. She did not even exist, for his driven soul had no time to remember her. It was only when he crawled to bed at night, or to breakfast in the morning, that she asserted herself to him in fleeting memories. "'This is hell, ain't it?' Joe remarked once. Martin nodded, but felt a rasp of irritation. The statement had been obvious and unnecessary. They did not talk while they worked. Conversation threw them out of their stride, as it did this time, compelling Martin to miss a stroke of his iron, and to make two extra motions before he caught his stride again. On Friday morning the washer ran. Twice a week they had to put through hotel linen, the sheets, pillow-slips, spreads, tablecloths, and napkins. This finished, they buckled down to fancy starch. It was slow work, fastidious and delicate, and Martin did not learn it so readily. Besides, he could not take chances. Mistakes were disastrous. "'See that?' Joe said, holding up a filmy corset cover that could have been crumpled from view in one hand. "'Scorch that, and it's twenty dollars out of your wages.' So Martin did not scorch that, and ease down on his muscular tension, though nervous tension rose higher than ever, and he listened sympathetically to the other's blasphemies as he toiled and suffered over the beautiful things that women wear when they do not have to do their own laundrying. Fancy starch was Martin's nightmare, and it was Joe's, too. It was fancy starch that robbed them of their hard-won minutes. They toiled at it all day. At seven in the evening they broke off to run the hotel linen through the mangle. At ten o'clock, while the hotel guests slept, the two laundrymen, sweated on at fancy starch till midnight, till one, till two. At half-past two they knocked off. Saturday morning it was fancy starch and odds and ends, and at three in the afternoon the week's work was done. "'You ain't going to ride them seventy miles into Oakland on top of this,' Joe demanded, as they sat on the stairs and took a triumphant smoke. "'Got to,' was the answer. "'What are you going for, a girl?' No to save two and a half on the railroad ticket. I want to renew some books at the library. Why don't you send them up and down by express? That'll cost you only a quarter each way. Martin considered it. And take a rest tomorrow, the other urged. You need it. I know I do. I'm plumb tuckered out. He looked it. Indomitable, never resting, fighting for seconds and minutes all week, circumventing delays and crushing down obstacles a fount of resistless energy, a high-driven human motor, a demon for work. Now that he had accomplished the week's task, he was in a state of collapse. He was worn and haggard, and his handsome face drooped in lean exhaustion. He pulled his cigarette spiritlessly, and his voice was peculiarly dead and monotonous. All the snap and fire had gone out of him. His triumph seemed a sorry one. And next week we got to do it all over again, he said sadly. And what's the good of it all, hey? Sometimes I wish I was a hobo. They don't work, and they got their living. Gee, I wish I had a glass of beer. But I can't get up the gumption to go down to the village and get it. You'll stay over and send your books dawn by express, or else you're a damn fool. But what can I do here all Sunday? Martin asked. Rest? You don't know how tired you are. Why... I'm that tired Sunday I can't even read the papers. I was sick once, typhoid, in the hospital two months and a half. Didn't do a tap of work all that time. It was beautiful. It was beautiful, 
he repeated dreamily a minute later. Martin took a bath, after which he found that the head laundryman had disappeared. Most likely he had gone for a glass of beer, Martin decided, but the half-mile walk down to the village to find out seemed a long journey to him. He lay on his bed with his shoes off, trying to make up his mind. He did not reach out for a book. He was too tired to feel sleepy, and he lay, scarcely thinking, in a semi-stupor of weariness, until it was time for supper. Joe did not appear for that function, and when Martin heard the gardener remark that most likely he was ripping the slats off the bar, Martin understood. He went to bed immediately afterward, and in the morning decided that he was greatly rested. Joe being still absent, Martin procured a Sunday paper and lay down in a shady nook under the trees. The morning passed, he knew not how. He did not sleep, nobody disturbed him, and he did not finish the paper. He came back to it in the afternoon, after dinner, and fell asleep over it. So passed Sunday, and Monday morning he was hard at work sorting clothes, while Joe, a towel bound tightly around his head, with groans and blasphemies, was running the washer and mixing soft soap. "'I simply can't help it,' he explained. "'I got to drink when Saturday night comes around.' Another week passed, a great battle that continued under the electric lights each night, and that culminated on Saturday afternoon at three o'clock, when Joe tasted his moment of wilted triumph, and they drifted down to the village to forget. Martin's Sunday was the same as before. He slept in the shade of the trees, toiled aimlessly through the newspaper, and spent long hours lying on his back, doing nothing, thinking nothing. He was too dazed to think, though he was aware that he did not like himself. He was self-repelled, as though he had undergone some degradation or was intrinsically foul. All that was godlike in him was blotted out. The spur of ambition was blunted. He had no vitality with which to feel the prod of it. He was dead. His soul seemed dead. He was a beast, a work-beast. He saw no beauty in the sunshine, sifting down through the green leaves, nor did the azure vault of the sky whisper as of old and hint of cosmic vastness and secrets trembling to disclosure. Life was intolerably dull and stupid, and its taste was bad in his mouth. A black screen was drawn across his mirror of inner vision and fancy lay in a darkened sick-room, where entered no ray of light. He envied Joe, down in the village, rampant, tearing the slats off the bar, his brain gnawing with maggots, exulting in maudlin ways over maudlin things, fantastically and gloriously drunk, and forgetful of Monday morning, and the week of deadening toil to come. A third week went by, and Martin loathed himself and loathed life. He was oppressed by a sense of failure. There was reason for the editor's refusing his stuff, he could see that clearly now, and laugh at himself and the dreams he had dreamed. Ruth returned his sea lyrics by mail. He read her letter apathetically. She did her best to say how much she liked them and that they were beautiful. But she could not lie, and she could not disguise the truth from herself. She knew they were failures and he read her disapproval in every perfunctory and unenthusiastic line of her letter. And she was right. He was firmly convinced of it as he read the poems over. Beauty and wonder had departed from him. And as he read the poems he caught himself puzzling 
as to what he had had in mind when he wrote them. His audacities of phrase struck him as grotesque, his felicities of expression were monstrosities, and everything was absurd, unreal, and impossible. He would have burned the sea lyrics on the spot, had his will been strong enough to set them aflame. There was the engine-room, but the exertion of carrying them to the furnace was not worth while. All his exertion was used in washing other persons' clothes. He did not have any left for private affairs. He resolved that when Sunday came he would pull himself together and answer Ruth's letter. But Saturday afternoon, after work was finished and he had taken a bath, the desire to forget overpowered him. I guess I'll go down and see how Joe's getting on, was the way he put it to himself. And in the moment he knew that he lied. But he did not have the energy to consider the lie. If he had had the energy, he would have refused to consider the lie, because he wanted to forget. He started for the village slowly and casually, increasing his pace in spite of himself as he neared the saloon. "'I thought you was on the water-wagon,' was Joe's greeting. Martin did not deign to offer excuses, but called for whiskey, filling his own glass brimming before he passed the bottle. "'Don't take all night about it,' he said roughly. The other was dawdling with the bottle, and Martin refused to wait for him, tossing the glass off in a gulp and refilling it. "'Now I can wait for you,' he said grimly, "'but hurry up.' Joe hurried, and they drank together. "'That did the work, eh?' Joe queried. Martin refused to discuss the matter. "'It's fair hell, I know,' the other went on. "'But I kind of hate to see you come off the wagon, Mart. Well, here's how.' Martin drank on silently, biting out his orders and invitations and awing the barkeeper, an effeminate country youngster with watery blue eyes and hair parted in the middle. "'It's something scandalous the way they work us poor devils.' Joe was remarking. If I didn't bowl up, I'd break loose and burn down the shebang. My bowling up is all that saves him, I can tell you that. But Martin made no answer. A few more drinks, and in his brain he felt the maggots of intoxication beginning to crawl. Ah, it was living, the first breath of life he had breathed in three weeks. His dreams came back to him. Fancy came out of the darkened room and lured him, a thing of flaming brightness. His mirror of vision was silver-clear, a flashing, dazzling palimpsest of imagery. Wonder and beauty walked with him, hand in hand, and all power was his. He tried to tell it to Joe, but Joe had visions of his own, infallible schemes whereby he would escape the slavery of laundry work and become himself the owner of a great steam laundry. I tell you, Mart, they won't be no kids working in my laundry, not on your life. And they won't be no workin' a livin' soul after six p.m. You hear me talk. There'll be machinery enough and hands enough to do it all in decent workin' hours. And Mart, so help me, I'll make you superintendent of the shebang, the whole of it, all of it. Now, here's the scheme. I get on the water wagon and save my money for two years. Save, and then— But Martin turned away, leaving him to tell it to the barkeeper, until that worthy was called away to furnish drinks to two farmers who, coming in, accepted Martin's invitation. Martin dispensed royal largesse, inviting everybody up, farmhands, a stableman, and the gardener's assistant from the hotel, the barkeeper, and the furtive hobo who slid in like a shadow, 
and like a shadow hovered at the end of the bar. End of chapter 17